Hi and welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for the show. Today we will talk to Xander Steenbrug, head of applied machine learning research at ML6. Xander was a speaker at Data Hack Summit Bangalore and did a live hack session training an agent to play Atari games in front of more than 800 people. He is currently doing a PhD in deep reinforcement learning and is one of the smartest people I know of. He also runs a very popular YouTube channel Archive Insights which has more than 21000 subscribers and has some amazing videos on deep learning and reinforcement learning. In this episode we will talk to Zender about the current state of reinforcement learning, the challenges it faces today and what can we expect in reinforcement learning in coming years. Thanks Zander for uh, taking time out for uh, Data Hack Radio and uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have you and talk to you again after uh, Data Hack Summit. Uh, for the benefit of the audience can you tell us a bit about yourself uh, your background and how did you start into machine learning and then how did you get into this space? Yeah, of course. Um so I studied uh, civil engineering here in Belgium at the University of Ghent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually I I chose to major in electronics so my entire educational background really came from you know working with transistors and making small microcircuits and and working with electronics mm-hmm. um but I kind of slowly realized that if you're working in electronics going from an idea to an actual product that is you know put into market usually takes a while you know and so I kind of got interested in 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 coding and programming because the phase there from going from idea to execution is much quick much faster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so in my final masters year i took um, a thesis subject which was on uh, brain computer interfaces so when you take these headsets that record eeg data mm-hmm. and you use them to read someone's brain waves um and my thesis basically what we tried to do is use those headsets to kind of um classify what kind of emotion somebody was thinking about so they might be for example mentally you know mm-hmm. thinking about clenching their left or their right fist and mm-hmm. then by you know just monitoring those brain signals you can train a classifier using machine learning that basically distinguishes between you know those two groups of imagined emotion mm-hmm. and then the application of that is that you have a lot of patients that have a, a severe car accident so they're completely yeah. paralyzed Mm-hmm. so there there is still activity in the motor cortex so the brain works fine but mm-hmm. the spinal cord might be damaged and therefore the signals don't actually travel to the muscles right but you can still actually record the brain signals and classify from that so we built a system mm-hmm. um, where we had a human patient completely mm-hmm. paralyzed in a chair in front of a computer and by simply thinking of specific um motions they were able to to you know move around the cursor on the screen and select different actions etc And so that that was the thesis about yeah and so the, the the obviously the direction that people are going to right now is to actually be able to control a robotic limb so if you mm-hmm. lost an arm or a leg then ideally you want to be able to control a robotic arm exactly the same way as you would control your own arm just by thinking about a movement you want the robotic arm to know what to do and that's kind okay. of where this direction is is going 
and this yeah. work uh, uh, did it involve uh, machine learning uh, on those signals yes. or this was more rule based uh, no, no 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 so we we had a lot of um, data pre processing because the eg data that you get is very yeah. noisy mm -hmm. so there's a lot of like custom filtering and pre processing happening but mm -hmm. then once we had the clean signals uh, we did do some manual feature extraction but then we actually had a machine learning classifier that was trained on training data from multiple people. So there was a little bit of machine learning. And that was actually, you know, together with the thesis, I also took a course in machine learning. And I think that's when like this whole world opened up for me. And mm -hmm. I realized, you know, wow, this is really interesting stuff. And you can build applications with this that you cannot build anywhere else. So that's when it really got there, yeah. And which year was this? So when when uh, you doing this? My uh, um, thesis started in 2000. Uh, 13 and I was finished in 2015. Yeah, so I have to admit that at that time in 2013 uh, Neural networks were very 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 I mean very little people actually used them It was kind of the yeah. underdog and there was yeah. this fancy new thing and I actually have a section in my thesis where I tried out neural nets mm -hmm. But most of the stuff I was doing wasn't really involving neural nets, but it was more like LDA classifiers SVMs mm -hmm. things like that Interesting. And then what, what size of uh, data were you dealing with? So was, uh, were you able to kind of apply SVM on, on that kind of? Uh, yeah, so we had uh, each data recorded from 15 people. And for every person, we had something like 400 trials per imagined motion. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did a lot of manual feature extraction. So the, the, the EG signals are very noisy. So you want to do averaging over time and you want to look at variances and then you want to compare different channels in the same neighborhood so there's a lot of manual stuff involved mm -hmm. and after that feature extraction process then we used svms on top of those manually extracted features this was uh, 2015 and by the time you you kind of finished this this is i'm presuming neural net started picking up uh, attention and then the yeah exactly so so during my thesis i had one section where i actually tried to train a neural net to classify but it did way worse than the svms that i was using and the mm -hmm. lda classifiers simply because i didn't have that much data and all these fancy techniques of you know dropout and regularization and batch norm like none of that existed so the mm -hmm. neural nets we were using were very simple things i mean i think if i were to do my thesis again i would probably start with convolutional nets right away that's the first thing that i would try Right. Because you want to learn the spatial combination of these different sensors on the EG headset. Yeah. And that's really good fit for ConvNets if you have a lot of data. But, Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So data might exactly. become a problem this time. When you go. <laughs> exactly. If you want to tackle the same problem, you use deep learning right now and you would need a lot more data. That's true. Correct. Correct. And so, so when did you decide that, uh, you know, you wanted to kind of move into ML full time and do a PhD? Uh, uh, how did that happen? I don't think there was this one aha moment where I sort of switched, but I think I gradually started seeing all the potential that there was in, in these uh, learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. And so from the very beginning, I was kind of hooked both on an applied level and seeing the, 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 the the application potential but also i think more on a like more philosophical level of thinking about you know how does our mind work and what is the brain really doing and sort of seeing a really good match in this paradigm of machine learning to start to think about these bigger questions that you have in philosophy as well so i think i was i was a bit hooked on on both sides you know like mm -hmm. like application wise but also more high level thinking mm -hmm. about these things and and then i think you know i started reading books and i started reading a bunch of the classics from marvin minsky for example mm -hmm. 
some of the older stuff in the, in the artificial intelligence movement. And it kind of gradually grew to the point where I realized, you know, this is probably what I'm going to do with my life for the next couple of years. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And when did you uh, come across reinforcement learning as a, as a domain and what were some of the early things you, you kind of remember well, from your exposure? Actually, that, that came a lot later. So I started working as a machine learning consultant and we were doing mostly things like computer vision projects and natural mm-hmm. language processing. Mm-hmm. And I remember in 2015, there was this really famous paper by DeepMind where they introduced yeah. uh, the DQN algorithms on trained on Atari. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was really... I mean, that really blew my mind that you can simply train an algorithm to play any kind of game with the same algorithm, because that's really the, the key thing. It's one algorithm that can learn anything based on these very sparse feedback signals of giving it the rewards and only using pixels as an input. That was really surprising to me. And so at that point, I started realizing, okay, this reinforcement learning thing, I've seen the word pop out a couple of times, but I really don't know what it, what it's doing. And then I sort of committed myself to sort of learning what that is actually doing. And then I kind of figured out it's, it's actually not as, as difficult as it seems. Uh, it's basically supervised learning, but with a few tweaks, right? And then if you think about the broader paradigm of where we want to go with machine learning, I think, you know, a few decades from now, what I think everybody hopes to have is a very smart robotic assistant in your house that can clean your laundry, it can do your dishes, it can make you a meal, it can, you know, tend to your garden, it can do all of those things, basically Mm -hmm. one robot, one algorithm. That is kind of where we want to go. And I think the only reasonable approach that we have right now is is called reinforcement. Correct, correct. So let's let's kind of uh, go a bit deep uh, on reinforcement learning. So can you uh, tell a bit about uh, reinforcement learning fundamentally different and then coming to, uh, you know, deep reinforcement learning? So so what is deep mm-hmm. reinforcement learning? But so the, the big difference between between supervised learning and reinforcement learning is that in reinforcement, the only thing you put in there is a goal, right? So you put a goal in there for the agent to achieve but you don't really exactly tell it how to achieve that goal. You don't tell it go left here, then go right there. Because if you think about supervised learning, you have an input image, you have a label, and you know exactly what your model, what you want your model to produce for Mm -hmm. every image, you know what it it should output. Whereas in reinforcement learning, you don't know that. So the agent is taking a lot of actions, and then after a while, you can tell it of whether it's doing is, 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 is a good thing, towards the goal you want you want it to achieve or if it's doing a really bad job. And mm-hmm. so basically you have a very sparse feedback signal that the agent has to learn to, to learn in this environment. And that's the, the big difference. That for supervised learning, you have input-output pairs for everything. And yeah. in supervised learning, you only have those input-output pairs on a very long-term horizon. That is mm-hmm. kind of the major difference. Sure. So uh, in, in some sense, it's like, uh, you know, predictive analytics and uh, reinforcement learning takes you a step closer to prescriptive analytics where, where actions are kind of uh, uh, starting uh, to be taken by the agent itself rather than kind of pushing it out. Yes, as a, yes, out. yes. And, and the big difference is that the reinforcement learning system can learn to do something that we as humans don't know how to do. For example, mm-hmm. if you think about the AlphaGo story from Google DeepMind, mm-hmm. well, they were able to beat the best player at Go. Why? Well, because there is no way to hard code it, right? Because yeah. nobody knows yeah. what the best move is. Mm-hmm. But this reinforcement learning system simply had a very abstract goal, which is win the game. Mm-hmm. And by training using reinforcement learning and a couple of other tricks, it was able to come up with its own actions that are actually better than what the 
best humans can do. And that is a very fundamental difference. You can never get this with supervised learning, right? With supervised yeah. learning, there's always a ceiling, which is mm -hmm. how good is my training data. Whereas yeah. in reinforcement learning setting, your agent can actually break through that and actually come up with new solutions that we humans haven't, haven't really discovered. And it's a very fundamental difference. Correct, correct, true, true. Uh, and, uh, you know, what is the current state of uh, reinforcement learning in industry? So obviously there is a lot of research happening uh, and, you know, companies like Google or DeepMind or OpenAI are working on it. But, uh, you know, if you have to take a kind of slightly broader view, uh, what's, uh, what's your view? So where is reinforcement learning right now in industry and in research? And how do you see this uh, evolving in next? few years yeah so i think if you look at the current state of the art what is happening in academia over what has happened over the past couple of years mm -hmm. is that we have been training these agents in simulations right we've been using mm -hmm. game environments game engines things like atari or mojoko simulators for robotic arms because these algorithms are what we call very sample inefficient. In other words, they need to see a lot of examples before they actually learn something useful. Yeah. So the problem is if you go to a real world setting, well, in a lot of cases, you don't actually have that much training data. You don't have a perfect simulator of the world where you can just have your agent trained for as long as it needs to. Yeah. But what we're seeing right now in research is that there is a very strong pressure to come up with algorithms that learn more efficiently, that need to see less data to learn the same thing. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the fact that we also want algorithms that are trained in a certain environment, but then if we change the situation a little bit, we also want that algorithm to generalize to a slightly unseen but maybe related situation. There's these yeah. two pressures of getting the algorithms to be more effective learners, but also getting them to be more robust to slight changes. And I think because those things have been quite successful, we are now slowly starting to see the first applications of these algorithms in real world problems. So things like um, thinking about farming robotics, for example, there's a lot of um, industrial farming companies that are now coming up on the market with all these industrial robots that have a camera recognition system and they are able to, you know, drive through a field, automatically classify which fruits are ripe for picking. And then they have a robotic control algorithm that automatically picks those fruits for there's a lot of applications and mm -hmm. I think we're at the very, very, very start of a really big revolution where we're going to go from hard-coded robots to actually smart learning robots. And, and, you know, for a lot of applications, we're still, it's still too early. So I think a lot of research will still be needed because there's a, a lot of problems in reinforcement learning that we don't know how to solve yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we're at the very beginning of a, a very big revolution in robotics. Sure. And among the two problems which you mentioned, which is, you know, how do we learn efficiently with lesser data and how do we tackle the changes in environment which, which the agent might not have seen? Which one is, you know, more difficult and, and which one do you, you personally think would get solved first and how do you compare the two problems? Basically? I would definitely say that the generalization problem is the hardest one. So mm -hmm. we've been seeing this trend for the past five years that algorithms have been becoming you know, more sample efficient uh, over the past few years. Like if you compare the first algorithm DQN by the DeepMind paper with what we have right now, techniques like Rainbow, uh, et cetera, we do a lot better on this sample efficiency. So this has been increasing. I mean, obviously we're still not at human levels yet, but this is, is a trend that's ongoing and is probably not gonna stop. Mm -hmm. So we keep on inventing these additional learning goals that we add to the reward signal that basically make the agent more effective at learning. 
-hmm. But this problem of generalization, I think, is not really limited to reinforcement learning. I think it is one of these fundamentally core problems in all of deep learning that we we are fitting neural nets on data. And then we, we notice that if we, if we test them on test data, everything works fine as long as that test data comes from the same distribution as the training data. But right. if we apply the algorithm, the trained neural net, to a completely different scenario, which to us humans might be contextually the same, we mm -hmm. see that these neural nets are really, really bad at generalizing. And I don't think I've seen any really, really promising new solution to this yet. There's a lot of techniques of regularizing, et cetera, Mm -hmm. training on different environments, for example, but really it doesn't really solve the fundamental issue that these, these algorithms tend to overfit on what they see during training. So I think that is a really big problem. Mm -hmm. And I think if I were to guess, it's probably gonna, gonna require some fundamentally new ideas to actually solve it. Right, right. Completely agree. And uh, so with the current uh, uh, kind of developments which are happening, which domains uh, do you think uh, would see the biggest, uh, you know, either disruptions or benefits uh, coming yeah. from uh, reinforcement learning applications? Mm -hmm. Ah, you mean from, from applying reinforcement learning? Yeah. Uh, well, so I think, you know, by far, number one is probably the robotics industry. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, before we actually get this huge company that, that is putting robotic house assistants on the market, I mean, we're probably still five, 10, maybe 15 years away from that, right? There, mm -hmm. There's still a lot of things to be done before you can actually do that. Um, mm -hmm. But on a more like close term, I think a lot of um, industrial applications mm -hmm. are going to leverage reinforcement learning, for example, to optimize their entire production processes. So if you think about a um, production company, well, they usually have some kind of production line, they have a lot of sensor data, mm -hmm. and they have some kind of optimal um, setting, which is now, a lot, in a lot of cases, is being you know, put there by a control engineer that knows these, uh, these machines. Yeah. But if all those things are measurable and your KPIs, so the things that you actually want to achieve are also you know, numbers that you can somehow down, then I think reinforcement learning can really help in optimizing these very long, complicated production pipelines that have a lot of components that are influencing each other. So if you think about um, a company that produces beer, well, you have supplies coming in from different companies, yeah. um, natural resources, and they have varying properties. Mm -hmm. it rained less this year than it did last year, for example. But in the end, you just want the beer to be yeah exactly the same amount of alcohol you want it to taste the same the same you know, acidity so all those things are measurable and you can actually tune your entire production pipeline to meet those those criteria and to do that as efficiently as possible using you know, little amounts of electricity you not know, wasting any natural resources and all those things so i think in the short run you know applying reinforcement learning to these control settings which are in a sense from a machine learning point of view relatively simple is going to be the first big thing so you could also think about like, you know, um, online um, shopping websites like Amazon that do real-time pricing. They, they yeah. scrape websites of their competitors and they use reinforcement learning to you know, adjust their prices, things like that. And mm -hmm. then in the longer run, we're going to have uh, definitely, we're going to have all these reinforcement learning um, breakthroughs coming to real physical systems that are acting in the real world. Dear listener, when we talk to our community members to understand what are the biggest challenges they face in learning today, they consistently came back 
and told us that it is overwhelming for them to learn data science and machine learning. With so much to learn and so many resources out there, they ended up getting confused. That is when we thought of creating learning paths. I'm thrilled to announce that Analytics Vidya has released free and comprehensive learning paths, one for machine learning and one for deep learning. These learning paths have been structured in a way that you'll master these topics by end of 2019. So head over today to trainings.analyticswithya.com and enroll in these learning paths today. More than 2000 people have already registered on these learning paths. So you not only get structured learning, but you also benefit from peer learning and community learning. See you there. So that actually kind of brings me to the next question where uh, so a lot of research or the discussion which we have done till now is kind of focused on, you know, single agent system and how to kind of make this agent more intelligent in some manner. Uh, whereas a lot of real life examples are, uh, are you know, more like multi agents kind of interacting with each other. So how how does this leap? happen from movement to a single agent to a multi-agent problem and what kind of complexity does that bring? Well, I would say that um, from a modeling point of view, so the way you as a programmer kind of train the neural net, there mm -hmm. isn't that much that changes because as soon as you um, go to a multi-agent setting, then basically the other agents, they kind of become part of the environment, right? So yeah. the environment is now an environment that contains agents. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. What we know from humans, and we know this very good from psychology, is what we humans are really good at is that we model how other agents might be thinking. So if okay. I see somebody walking down the street mm -hmm. with a baseball bat and he's running towards me, then I have some kind of a model in my head that says, this is probably not good. Maybe I should start running. Right? So we have these mental models that we make of other agents and those mental models kind of help us in making choices in the world. Right? So, mm -hmm. so it kind of is a natural, um, a, a natural flow from going from single agency systems to multi-agent systems. Mm -hmm. The only thing that does change is the learning dynamics, because if there are other agents in the world and mm -hmm. they are also trying to achieve their goals and also changing their behavior when they learn, then this is going to make the whole learning environment a little bit less stable. So you're going to have to deal with these changing, uh, changing environments um, better, which is, which is not always that easy. I mean, we've seen, especially in self-play systems, Mm -hmm. For example, there was a nice uh, paper by OpenAI where they had these, um, these sumo wrestlers kind of um, trying to push each other out of the ring, mm -hmm. uh, trying if, you know, just by using self-play, they were training a system to become really good at this. And you really see that it's very tricky to balance your training procedure because you have these things like you have the same if you train a gun, you have two things training against each other. For example, in a gun, it's a discriminator and the generator. And it, it turns out that it's actually not that easy to balance your training process. So there are a little bit of extra things you have to think about, but in general, I don't see the transition being that much of a problem. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And then where are we on, uh, you know, research and academia on multi-agent? Multi so are multi-agent uh, reinforcement learning systems being used in industry in, in any specific areas which you know of? 
I don't actually know a lot of examples of where they are applying multi-agent systems in actual business applications. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, most of the research is still focusing on single agent systems because there are plenty of problems left to solve there. So I think, you know, it's probably going to take a while before we really have good learning agents. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think the problem of, of you know, addressing multi-agent problems is, is one that naturally comes after we solved a lot of the bigger questions in single agent systems. So, sure, sure. yeah. And and personally, how do you see this evolution happening? So do you see, you know, first, uh, let's say, we becoming better with single agent uh, algorithms and then at some point naturally moving to multi-agent? Or, or do you think that would be actually shorter? And, and we I, mean, not- I, think, I think the two things are very orthogonal to each other in the sense mm-hmm. that some people can be working on research that regards single agent systems and the other could be thinking about the interactions. And mm-hmm. these two areas of research are really orthogonal to each other. So improvements yeah. on one domain can be applied to the other without any consequence there. For for example, where I think multi-agent systems are very useful is if we're talking about language modeling, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's still a lot that we don't really understand about how language emerges and and what kind of properties it gets from that. So Mm -hmm. having agents that need to achieve a goal, like say survival in an environment, Mm -hmm. and then giving them the ability to communicate with each other and then seeing what emerges from that might be a very interesting direction to sort of better understand what is happening in, in natural language. So in terms of, uh, you know, let's say from a people perspective, uh, if they want to kind of uh, learn reinforcement learning and then start kind of uh, basics, so what are some of the uh, resources which, uh, which people can use and kind of uh, get up to speed with what is happening? Any good courses? Yeah. Or, uh, um, well, the thing is reinforcement learning is a big field, right? And yeah. I, I would say that if you want to start with reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. then like truly understanding normal supervised learning first is -hmm. probably a good idea because (laughs) reinforcement learning really builds on all the things that we already knew from supervised learning. So you should understand how an image classifier works first and then try to understand reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. If you already have the basics of like supervised deep learning, Mm -hmm. then I would recommend, I I actually started from a blog post that was written by by Andre Carpathy. He's now the Mm -hmm. head of AI at Tesla. Uh, He wrote a a blog post called Pong from Pixels, Mm -hmm. and it's not a very difficult one, but I think it it really clearly shows how you go from supervised learning to reinforcement learning. So that's actually where I started, and I still regard it as a very useful resource. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see more of a laid-back approach, I actually made uh, one video on my own channel, which is called An Introduction to Reinforcement Learning, where Mm -hmm. I actually link to that blog post myself. Um, So I give a quick 15-minute video intro on how you actually... How, how can you start understanding all these topics? And I think I have an, uh, quite a long list of additional resources. And mm-hmm. So there's a lot of courses on YouTube that actually go very deep into the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you also have a blog post from OpenAI mm-hmm. where they kind of lay out, uh, look, if you want to become a professional uh, reinforcement learning researchers, uh, here are some of the resources that we recommend. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff you can find. Sure, sure. And... Uh, in terms of uh, the infrastructure and the hardware, so so what kind of uh, things uh, people need to kind of uh, you know uh, get up to speed with uh, reinforcement learning? So so uh, do reinforcement learning algorithms use as much of GPUs, or uh, they, it can be done on both uh, CPUs as well as GPUs? 
Well, uh, that's a good question. So I think um, that reinforcement learning, typically the, the applications that we build right now, they don't really tend to use these super large uh, convolutional networks that we see in computer vision, right? Mm -hmm. So simply because these agents aren't that efficient yet at learning, the networks that we use there are typically much smaller. Mm -hmm. So you could have a convolutional net that parses the frame from an Atari game, but mm -hmm. it might have two or three convolutional layers instead of, you know, 30 or 50 or 100 in computer vision applications. So typically in reinforcement learning, you don't need that much GPU power because the networks are much smaller. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what you do have is this problem of, of learning efficiency, like we've talked about before. These agents, they need to get a lot of experience. And so what you see in practice is that most of these RL systems are actually trained using pools of workers that are all running in parallel against the environment and they're all running a copy of the agent against the environment, having it learned there. And this is happening in parallel, maybe over thousands of workers. Mm -hmm. And you have a central parameter server that is collecting all the experience from all those workers and using that to update the small network. So usually yeah. what you have in reinforcement learning settings, especially if you're trying to deal you know, with more complicated problems, is you have a lot of overhead in dealing with synchronous learners that are all communicating with the central parameters. Got it, got it. Look at, for example, OpenAI, who are doing a lot of research on this. They actually, you know, they designed their own library specifically to do this. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. And uh, in terms of, you know, uh, let's say going forward, so do you see this getting a lot more attention and something which uh, people will kind of uh, see a, a change over here? I am very sure that um, 10 years from now, when we look back, we will kind of realize that, you know, what has happened over the past five years is that we learned how to do supervised learning with neural nets. That's mm -hmm. what we learned. We know how to do it, right? We know how to use backpropagation and optimizers and learning rate and gradient descent and super, all of those things. We kind of know how to do that. It's not, mm -hmm. there's still developments going on. We're still, you know, tweaking computer vision models, but we've kind of fundamentally solved how to do supervised learning. I think mm -hmm. the next trend is really to figure out like, how can you learn something if you don't have labels? Because if you think about a little kid, you know, they play with Lego blocks, well, they don't have labels, right? They just interact with the world. They come up with their own goals of, mm -hmm. hey, what, what can I try and do with these Lego blocks? And what, what does that teach me about the world? And they use all of that playing to sort of create a world model that is very good at learning new tasks very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very natural progression. You know, we figure out how to do supervised learning. And now we got to take those building blocks and think about how we can, you know, actually build smart self-learning systems that can do useful things. Sure, sure. And uh, if you have to uh, take a step back and, you know, summarize what are, let's say, the top uh, two or three big developments which need to kind of happen in, in the domain to truly kind of democratize it and then start getting used in uh, industry, what would those challenges be? Okay, so I think one of the big problems right now is that um, for supervised learning, we have seen the emergence of a lot of very useful and easy to use toolkits, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about something like Keras, for yeah. example, it's very easy to actually take a pre-trained model that was you know, learned or trained on, on ImageNet, for example, chop off the top few layers, fine-tune those layers on your own data set, which might only contain a couple of thousands of labeled images, and then export a very good classifier and put it to production, right? It's, yeah. it's actually really easy to do that because we have a lot of tools in place. 
Mm -hmm. If you want to do something like this in reinforcement learning, you will see that it is a lot more difficult. There are so many different algorithms. They all have these hyperparameters that are very difficult to tune. Mm -hmm. uh, something like transfer learning simply doesn't exist if you're talking about reinforcement learning. We yeah. don't have something like that. And so I think what we'll have to do first is develop kind of a, a tool set that maybe becomes a little bit more standardized. Mm -hmm. right, so I think the framework from OpenAI already introduced this idea of like you have an environment and you do environment.step action. And those are, are becoming kind of the default way of, of, of implementing these things. But we don't have a standard tool set. Everybody is using their own libraries, their own code bases. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the hurdles that you have to do a lot of custom stuff, which doesn't make it scalable and it doesn't make it easy. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing again is that as I've been saying, most of these successes in, super, in uh, reinforcement learning, they come from using simulated game environments, right? Yeah. And if you go to the real world, well, there simply aren't that many cases where you have a perfect simulation of whatever is happening. So we really need to think about how can we take these systems and either, you know, we have to have them learn from a lot less data because then we can actually put them in practical environments and, you know, try to learn in the physical world. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we have this problem of sample efficiency, which is still very horrible. Yeah. Or the other thing is, how can, we, how can we have them learn in a simulation, but then take that learned uh, behavior and sort of transfer it to a real-world application without having it break down? Mm -hmm. There are some techniques that go in this direction, something like domain randomization, for example, is a little step in that direction. But I still, I still think we're very far off. Mm -hmm. so, so definitely it, it is early in, um, in the world of reinforcement learning. Hi Learner, are you looking to get into data science roles but getting rejected by employers? Are you scared of getting into these data science interviews or you just don't know what to expect in a data science interviews? I'm excited to announce the launch of is data science interviews course the only course you need to have all your data science interview related questions answered this course has been created based on hundreds of interviews that i have personally taken and when i worked with companies to find them the right data science talent the course is currently available on trainings.analyticswithday.com in a pre-launch offer and there are limited seats available in the course so go out and register today thank you as you mentioned that you know in a simulation i can still run a lot of agents uh, in parallel in their own independent uh, environments and collect data what are some of the ways people are doing that in in case of uh, real life so uh, how do how are people kind of uh, trying to get more labeled data in in real life scenarios any, any well i think that for now that that is kind of an open question so what, what i see usually happening is that um what, what happens quite often is that a company has a large set of of historical data from some kind of uh, let's say a, a production process mm -hmm. what you would typically do then is instead of um using something like bpo for example which does online learning mm -hmm. you take an off policy learning algorithm something like DQN, and you look at the static historical data, mm -hmm. and you simply try to learn a value or a Q function by looking at the historical data. So in this case, you don't need an active agent that is, you know, 
taking actions. You can just have the agent look at the data that you already have and mm -hmm. try to learn from that whatever you have. Mm -hmm. So you can already jump over a large part of the learning process. But then at some point, you will have to take that agent, which you think might have learned something, and then test it in the environment to see if it actually does what you think it's going to do. So at some point, you always have to plug it in into an environment. And that, that could either be the physical environment or it could be a simulation of that environment. Right. So also a lot of people are working on how can you learn simulator by looking at historical data maybe you don't want to put the agent in the in the actual process because it might you know do something horrible maybe you can use the historical data to learn a model that can replicate that environment and then see how your agent does in that simulation but again there's a lot of problems there because even if if your your learned environment your, your learned simulator is very good. I mean, imagine that it's it's predicting the next time step very accurately, but there's a really small drift. Well, as soon as your actions are, you know, if you take a thousand actions, every one of them has a little bit of drift. And in the end, you know, your simulator is going to start diverging from the real situation. And it becomes very hard to actually, you know, to, to benchmark how well an agent would be doing. So there's a lot of open problems. I think right now people are trying to learn from static data using off-policy learning algorithms, but then you still at some point have to go back to the environment and test your agent. And there's no way around that for now. Yeah, yeah, interesting. In terms of the current uh, you know, research, so what are some of the top universities where uh, there is uh, you know, high quality research happening and then what are some of the good places to kind of follow uh, in terms of research work which is happening in the domain? Well, I have to be honest, there, there's a lot. Like, like it's really hard to, to put an exhaustive list because there's so many different research groups that are working. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what you see happening is that, that every kind of research group maybe has a little bit of, of their personal um, area, their niche that they're exploring. Mm -hmm. some, some people might be working more on like, uh, how can you augment the reward signal with things like... Um, curiosity-driven exploration, for example. And other people are more thinking about how can we uh, scale up the reinforcement learning uh, training process to 100,000 parallel agents, thinking about more of the practical scaling issues. Another, you know, so there's a lot of different um, directions that people are working on, but I would say maybe the top five ones, there definitely is like Google DeepMind and OpenAI. Those have been mm -hmm forefront ever since the beginning mm -hmm. uh, but a university like UC Berkeley for example is also very prominent they, they've mm -hmm. put, they also have a really good blog that I really recommend checking out mm -hmm. they have a nag of like explaining these very technical papers in a very readable blog form which is kind of interesting um, and there's a lot of other universities like like mm -hmm. even China right now is doing a lot of good research they, they aren't open sourcing that much of their code as, as their Western counterparts are, but they, there is a lot of very interesting research coming out of China right now. Sure. And, uh, you know, you're doing your PhD on one side, you're also working in a, a exciting startup. So how do you kind of uh, end up spending your time between research and, and uh, yeah. your own work? So tell us. Well, to answer that quickly, it's, it's not very easy. I mean, I have to split my time. That's true. Um, but so basically what, what my job is, is that because I'm doing a PhD, I have the, the time to kind of um, follow what is happening in the academic space, right? Because as you all know, in machine learning, things happen really quickly. Like if you think about the state of the art today versus one year ago, a lot has changed. Yeah. And as a company, we are, you know, we're a consulting company in machine learning. So you want to stay on top of your game, right? Because you mm -hmm. want to know what is the current state of the art solution 
and you want to apply that and, and sort of create value for your customers. And to, to be able to do that, you have to have people that kind of spend time on reading papers and keeping up with the progress in the field to sort of look for opportunities where you say, look, there is this new transfer learning um, GitHub repository and it's super good and you can simply clone it and we can make all the computer vision solutions that we currently have implemented for our customers, we can make them better by simply applying this or this technique. Mm -hmm. For example, we have a lot of chatbots that mm -hmm. are in production at customers, uh, but recently Google, um, they open sourced their new language models, BERT, mm -hmm. and it has a GitHub repository which, which contains uh, pre-trained word embeddings in something like 80 different languages. Yeah. But if you have a chatbot in production, well, it's actually really simple to swap the word embeddings that you're using at that time with the new word embeddings that were trained by, by BERT, so it's a new algorithm, and suddenly you will see the performance of that chatbot kind of spiking. It will just be better because you use better initialization of those word embeddings. And the only reason you can actually keep up with that progress is if, if you really spend time in, in reading papers and blogs. And all. So yeah. that's kind of my focus, is to, to look at academics, what is happening, what is being open sourced, what is being published, and to look for opportunities to apply those things in the practical Sure, sure. And you also run your own YouTube channels, you know, what kind of topics do you cover and then, uh, you know, how do you kind of carve out time? How do you decide uh, what to create for your YouTube channel? Well, I started the YouTube channel basically from, from the point of view that I realized, you know, I am consuming a lot of internet, so I'm reading a lot, I'm, I'm downloading stuff, but I don't really put something out there myself. And so at some point I thought, maybe I should start producing something as well. I thought about a blog, but there's already so many blogs that nobody has time to read them. And then I sort of realized, you know, for me personally, the most efficient uh, use of my time, you know, learning versus time-wise is usually by watching well-made videos. If a video is well-made, I have the impression that I can learn a lot in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So I started creating videos and then I was thinking, you know, what topics should I pick? Um, mm -hmm. I could even listen to my subscribers and then have them vote for videos. But I sort of realized that if I make videos because I personally find them interesting and because they have an interesting research direction, that gives me personally a lot more motivation to work on them and to make them good videos. So basically right now, I simply pick topics that I think are going to be relevant, not only right now, but will probably stay relevant in the couple, in you know, the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I try to sort of, you know, start with a little bit of fundamentals, like how how is this area located in the whole machine learning landscape, and then what are some of the ideas that I think are becoming more interesting and more valuable uh, for looking at. That's uh, uh, really interesting. And uh, I mean, I've personally liked uh, some of the videos which you have made, the, especially the 15 minute video, which you were mentioning about reinforcement learning. Uh, yeah, I, I think, think that's also uh, one of the most popular ones on, on the channel, yeah. Correct. I mean, uh, it's some really good work there and, and I'm sure the listeners would uh, benefit a lot when they go, go through the YouTube channel uh, as well. <laughs> Thanks, Xander, for you know sharing those insights and then, uh, you know, information about what's happening in industry. And uh, uh, really glad that you could take this time out and, uh, you know, we could do this discussion. I, I personally learned a lot and uh, uh, I'm sure the audience would learn as well. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the last thing I would like to say is like, I remember when I first came into machine learning, mm -hmm. it was a big 
thing, you know, I did, there were so many things that I didn't understand and I didn't know that it can sometimes seem a little bit daunting if you want to get started. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just think about the fact that machine learning is only five to 10 years old. So there aren't really any professionals with 30 years of experience. Any, everybody in the, in the field is, is new and is young and had to learn everything on his own. So give mm-hmm. yourself some slack and take, take it one step at a time. Yeah, in fact, I mean, if you are 20, 30 years in industry, you're probably at a disadvantage because you have to unlearn and then learn from. Yes, very true. Like, for example, here at the startup that I work, almost everybody is 30 years or younger. So it, mm-hmm. it really is a world dominated by, by young people um, that are that are prepared to do a little bit of learning. <laughs> Correct. A lot of learning. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. Sure. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Sander, for your time. And uh, it was very welcome. Very welcome.